Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your ma earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. The word of God. So, the thing we want to say is that this is a difficult passage. We said this last week, that there's stuff in here that, at least on first reading and beyond, actually is difficult for us, particularly in our existing culture. And we all come to it with our own biases, our own backgrounds, and our own expectations of what we want this text to say. And so last week we said we really want to allow it to speak to us and to challenge us where that's important and, and appropriate. Here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the context. We're going to look at the three groups of people that are, that are looked at. And particularly this week, we're going to look at two of them. And then we're going to look at maybe what that conclusion means for us. Um, I nearly titled this sermon, Jesus is Lord, but context is King. Right? Because actually the context really, really matters. If we, don't, if we get that wrong, then we're going to misread all of these. Not just the wives and husbands we looked at last week, but the fathers and children and the slaves and masters that we'll look at this week. So here's, there's three contexts that I think matter for us. Uh, as we go through this. The first is the book of Colossians. The whole book of Colossians, as I said a moment ago, the message is Jesus reigns, and he reigns over everything. That's the whole section in Colossians chapter 1. It's that Jesus' reign isn't just about a nice little personal, oh, Jesus is my Lord, but actually he's the Lord of everything. That All creation was made for him. It was made by him. It was made through him. And so actually there's this cosmic sense of Jesus being in control of absolutely everything. Therefore, nothing's the same. So what we should have an expectation of because of that context is when we come to these household codes, they can't just be reinforcing the current world order, right? That wouldn't make any sense to the whole of the rest of the book, right? We also see in Colossians 3.12 that Paul is laying out for us this sense of a whole new humanity. What is it like to live as a new humanity? And he paints a picture of what the church will look like from verse 12 through 15. And in 3.11, he says, Here, that is, in this place, the church, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In other words, Jesus has to be our Lord. He has made us to be a completely different type of people. And that must have an impact on the household codes. Simply must. Otherwise, the whole thing doesn't make any sense. That's the first context, Colossians. The second context, the whole Bible itself. 
This book of Colossians doesn't appear in a vacuum. We did a series a couple of months ago that talked about what is the Bible, and we were saying all the time that we need to think of it in the context of this much bigger story. What is that bigger story? What's the first part? Creation. The second part? Fall. Then we've got redemption through in two ways, right? Does anybody remember what they were? Israel, and then Jesus, and then we get at the end, what's the bit at the end? New creation. That's right. So that's our story that we see through the whole of the Bible. And actually, the important thing for us in this context is to say, well, how does that fit here? Well, if we look at the first part of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, there's no hierarchy. Men and women, it uses language of side by side all the time. And then in, Coloss- in Genesis chapter 3, and I didn't read this last week, and that was a mistake, so I'm not going to do the same thing this week. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, once the fall has happened, so that Adam, Adam and Eve have taken from the fruit that, uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then it says this, so Jesus, God is proclaiming curses on the, on the snake and then the man and the woman. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, with painful labor, you will give birth to children. And then it says this, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It's the first sign of any hierarchy in the Bible. It's actually the result of, a fall, of the fall. It's a curse. Why does that matter? Well, because the whole purpose of the New Testament is telling us what this new creation is going to look like. And the new creation looks a lot like the original creation before the fall. And so there's no hierarchy. You go and read Genesis. It's all about everyone together, whether that's no matter what tribe or tongue or gender or anything. Actually, everyone is together. There's no slaves or free people in the new creation. We're all one. And Paul is saying that actually in the church, that's to be, big word, inaugurated. That's to be experienced. That's to begin happening now, not in the future, now. And so that's the context of the whole of the Bible. There's a story being told of what that means, that hierarchy is a result of the fall, and God is undermining that beginning now. But it also happens in the much wider context of the culture of the day. And that culture of the day uh, was the Roman, Greco-Roman culture. Now, what happens in, happened in the Greco-Roman culture, particularly in the Roman part of it, was that these household codes were well known. They had them written. And the reason they were written out was because Rome knew that if they could control the way that individual households happened, and little addendum here, when I say household, I don't mean mum, dad, and 2.4 children, or any other kind of blended version of that. We're talking about something much larger. We're talking about uh, parents, definitely, children, definitely, slaves, certainly, probably also domestic hired help, more than likely multiple generations. So we're talking about dozens of people in a family unit. And it's not just, excuse me, it's not just a family unit, it's also an economic unit. This was the fundamental building blocks of Roman society. So if you think of a village or a small town uh, there, there might have been a few hundred people living in a village, but there were probably only 10 households And so there's 10 people at the top of those households who control the village. So can you see how that works as a way to control the whole of society? So they used to write these household codes, and they told these people at the top of the tree, this is how you're supposed to behave. These are your important obligations. These are your responsibilities. And that was how they brought order to Roman society. It brought order. I want to say something. 
We shouldn't have a particularly romantic view of that setup either. It was brutal. Absolutely brutal. It was a horrific place to be a child, in a lot of cases a horrific place to be a wife, and it was a terrible place to be a slave. Um, the abuse that went on, the, the level of depravity that existed in those households w- would shock us. And actually, when we understand that, if you go and read uh, the book of Corinthians, and we see in chapters 5 and 6, where there's, this, uh, there's issues of sexual immorality being dealt with in the church, and actually, it was normal, like what they're talking about there, which is, uh, a man sleeping with his mother-in-law, that wasn't abnormal. That kind of thing was normal in a Greco-Roman culture. It was really broken. And actually, I want you to grasp that because as we dig into some of what we've seen today, it's really important that we don't have some view of this as, oh, this was a nice little way to live, you know, everybody together, and we would care for the older people and the younger people. This was brutal and, and very, very hierarchical. So that's the household codes were a known thing and that that's how they functioned. And then the final thing I want to say about the context is that, and I, I said this last week, so if you were here last week, this is now, you're like, right, hurry up and get on to the bit that's new. Uh, we talked about an honor-shame culture last week, that, that actually this is the way that, that Rome functioned. We live today in a, in a culture which is largely driven by our rights. We're a rights-based culture. So I, I have certain rights And that means that I get to behave in a certain way, and it drives the ways that I function. And that's neither right or wrong. It just is the way it is. That's who we are. Um, I I suggested that I think, you know, if we go back maybe 100 years, we would find a culture much more based around duty than around rights. And so people did things out of duty rather than out of these are the rights that I have and I can behave in a certain way. Well, back in this Greco-Roman culture, and certainly as you move towards the Middle East, you find that there's an honor-shame culture. What do I mean by that? Well, everything was done for the purpose of avoiding shame and getting honor. So the, the easiest example is to decide whether you're going to be friends with someone. So we've had friends staying with us this weekend. It's a been a great joy to have them here, but I won't introduce you to them because they bring great shame to us. <laughs> no, that you would choose whether you were going to be friends with someone based on whether they would make you look better, look like you had more about you, and if they didn't, then you wouldn't be friends with them. Now, that's not how we function today, but it is exactly how they functioned in those days. And so everything that was done, including in the household codes, the whole point of all of it was, can I become more honorable? Can I be seen to be a person of great stature or more stature? So everything I would do would be to my own benefit and to gather honor and at all costs to avoid shame. If you travel to Southeast Asia, I haven't traveled there, but I do know some people from Southeast Asia, and there's still quite a strong culture of that in Southeast Asia, a real honor-shame kind of thing that's going on, and we'll see how that plays out in our text. I want to suggest that what God is doing through Paul's letter here is not reinforcing some cultural standards of misogyny or patriarchal power, but is instead setting out something that would have been truly shocking to his first hearers. That in conjunction with the rest of the New Testament, he is fatally undermining the world order of the day. That relationships 
that households were being undermined in a way that was setting us up to be the new humanity. In practical ways, he differs vastly from the household codes that were written at the time because he addresses the powerless, not just the powerful. The household codes normally were written for the head of the household to know how to run that household. Paul here is suggesting that everyone has a role and a responsibility within it and that they're to understand their place in the household as somebody who's under the ultimate reign of Jesus, that that's the way it functions. And most importantly, Paul's household code is not about who rules or who has authority, but it's rather it's about service and about love. And it becomes, therefore, the, for the Christian, not about how I can gain honor or power for my own sake, but rather how do I use it for the benefit of others. That that's the ultimate thing that's going on here. And so Paul leads us to these three particular groups, husbands and wives, first of all, I'm going to very quickly say what I said last week. I, t- I took about 25 minutes to do this last week. I'm going to try and do it in two. Husbands and wives, it says, wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord. The idea behind that is it was like a bit of a shrug. So what? Of course, wives were submitted to their husbands. It was the normal way for them to be. Submission in the New Testament was understood as just a, a normal Christian response of everyone towards everyone else. That we were all submitted to one another because we were all ultimately under Jesus' lordship. And so the idea of a wife submitting to her husband was a big shrug because, well, of course. But then Paul says, husbands love your wives. And at this point, he's turned everything on its head because wives were the property of the husband. They were part of the honor-shame thing, kind of like a trophy wife today maybe. They were to bear children so that there would be honor brought to the head of the household. It was a really tough life as the husband would often have had many lovers among the, the slaves that that were there in the household. And so as a result, the woman was often told to submit or to obey her husband in a way that there was no honor in it for her. It was really a soul-crushing thing. And Paul has turned up and says, love your wives. And so male authority here is set up not as power, but as love. And love in the Bible, and we've said this a few times through this series, that it is a covenantal commitment to someone to be present, to advocate for them, and to pursue Christ-likeness together. And so, in the context of a marriage, it's to be with her, to be present, to be for her, to be her advocate, and to pursue Christ-likeness together. That's what love is in the New Testament. And it's that that the husband is pushed towards. Christian marriage, therefore, is not the striving for authority over one another, nor the shifting of authority from one to the other, as we sometimes see in the current pendulum swing in our own culture, where, where as opposed to some sort of patriarchy, we're now saying, actually, no, we need to swing it all the other way, and women need to have power. Actually, in a Christian setting, we're saying something other than that. We're saying that rather than an equality based on power, we're looking for one based on love and of service of one another, which is profoundly different. And that is what Paul is asking here. He's not setting up some sort of misogynistic uh, marital relationship. In fact, he's setting up something that is based on radical equality as two people serving Jesus. Does that make sense? And all of you who were here last week were like, if you just said that, it would been much clearer. Anyway, there we go. Children and fathers. Children and fathers. Um, The most radical thing about this section is that the children were at all addressed. 
Children were never talked about. They were put at the back of the room. They were hidden away. Nobody had anything to do with them. They weren't brought out in public settings. They certainly didn't have the kind of thing that we have today where children are welcome among us and where we make space for them. I have a friend who leads a church in the United States, and it's quite a big church, and uh, he got a complaint one week afterwards and said the children are awful noisy in the service, particularly in the communion service. And uh, I, I think we should just you know, have them be a bit quieter. So Chris said, well, that's great. Thanks very much. I'll address it next week in church. So their church is kind of in the round. It's a big square, and so he sits on a stool in the middle. I quite, I, I, it looks really cool. I quite fancy trying it one week, but I'd probably fall off the stool and look anything but cool. But he sat in the middle, and he looks around, and he says, so some people have raised this issue that the children are noisy among us, and it's distracting for you during communion. So I, really, we're going to have to do something about it. So if you don't like the noise of the children, please go and find another church. Because he radically wanted to say, these children are welcome here. We can't read the New Testament and not see that Jesus says, come to me, these little children. And here he's doing the same thing. God is addressing the children. Through Paul's letter, God is addressing the children. He's giving them a place of significance. Enormously important. And really challenging for us, right? Because, I mean, to take the kind of thing that Chris did, to do that here, that, like those things bend people out of shape. I wish I had his kind of boldness, right? He's like, ah, well, on you go. You don't like it, leave. Um, I, I'm not saying that to any of you right now. Just <laughs> the avoidance of any doubt. Um, it wasn't some passive-aggressive way of having a pop at someone. Children are really important, and they're being pointed out like this. But he also says they have a purpose, which is really interesting, right? Because I think we sometimes think of children as somewhat purposelessness, right? That, you know, they're great. We love them. They're brilliant to have around. But, you know, like, they're just children and they do a thing. But actually, he gives them purpose. He says, you can please the Lord. I mean, what, a, what an amazing purpose to have. Even as an adult, what's your purpose? Um, I live to please the Lord. It reminds me of... Um, uh, Eric Little, thank you, that's why you're here. Um, uh, Eric Little, who says uh, when he runs, he feels the pleasure of God. Imagine that that was our children's experience. That as they obeyed, they felt the pleasure of God because they were pleasing God. Now, as we'll see, I think that puts a pretty heavy onus on those of us who would be parents. Um, but we'll come to that in a moment. And again, the other important thing about this aspect of the reason that they obey, it's not just about purpose. It's about understanding the context of it. We said about wives, their submission comes out of the fact they're submitted to the Lord. The husband's love comes out of the fact that he realizes he is loved by God. The children, their obedience is not based in some hierarchy. It's not obey your parents because they are over you. It's obey your parents because it brings, ple- it brings pleasure to the Lord. They, they have, it's their own submission to Jesus that's going to do that. Now, that begins to bend me a bit out of shape. Can I be honest with that? That in a church like ours where we baptize believers, and that means usually children who are getting a bit older, maybe 12, 14, 16, I don't know, the, the age is fairly arbitrary, but it does mean that what does it mean for these children to know enough to... Plea, that, that their obedience is 
directed towards Jesus, not just the parents. It says something about how important what our children's ministry is. We're not just sending our kids out so that they can be gone from us and we can hear the good stuff when they're gone. We're actually doing this because we want to profoundly invest in their lives, that they would know Jesus well enough to know that actually they have purpose and that their obedience of their parents even isn't just something they do because they should do it, but it's because they can please God. What what we're doing, what these guys are doing just now is profoundly important. And I want to say that no matter who you are here, you have a role in the community of discipling all of our children. Every interaction you have with them says to them something. Are they valuable? Do you, have, do you know their names? Are, are they, is there a way in which you can encourage those children? And yes, I know they can be noisy sometimes, and I know they can be frustrating because they jump down the stairs and they do things we would much rather they didn't do. But you know what? They, if, if we can set up a context in which they can obey, then they please God. Wow! What a lovely thing for us to be able to do. And so Paul then moves on. He leaves the children behind. He moves on. He says, now, fathers, don't embitter or exasperate, as we heard earlier, your children. Now, I'm going to add and mothers in here, but I am going to give some reason for that. So this was written 100% to fathers, because as we said, that person was the head of the household and they had all the authority. Now, in our culture, it does not function like that. Parents work together to, to uh, bring up children where that is possible. It's not always possible, but where it is possible, that's how it works. So there's no mothers getting off the hook here going, Aye, it's all right, that's your responsibility. Or for single parents, which is a big reality in our culture, that actually the, the, there is a sense in which you're not in this on your own. You should be able to rely on others. And we'll, I'll show you in a moment why I think that's Again, back to the whole community of faith. Obedience, said one author, is not the basis on which we are to love our children. In other words, we don't love our kids. We don't love our kids because they obey us. We are to love as God has loved us. And so the child's obedience becomes like that of the Christian, a glad and loving response to the love offered to them. If we love our kids in some way because they obey, if we only express our love when they obey us, then they think that our love is conditional on their obedience. And too many of us think of God like that. That when I obey, God loves me, but when I disobey, I'm really not so sure that he loves me at all. In fact, he's probably angry and capricious and going to beat me with a big stick. It's not true. It's not true. God always loves us. God has always loved us. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's love is never ending towards us. And so we need to display that towards our children in order that they won't become exasperated. Their obedience is not the basis of our love. But we also have to model something to them. If we want, it's all well and good that Marvin and Chris and all the other people who are involved in the children's ministry do that great work, but we have to model something to them of what it is to walk in a life with Jesus. And it's out of that that they will come to a place that they can 
discover for themselves that actually obedience to their parents is obedience to Jesus. We need to model something of our own journey. And I'd want to suggest that it's important that we're humble in that. Don't hide from your kids your struggles with faith, particularly as they get a bit older. It's okay for our kids to realize that faith isn't straightforward and a simple black and white thing. Because as they get to teenage years and beyond, they will realize the world is more complex. They will realize that there are pressures and strains that we feel that sometimes aren't simply answered by saying Jesus is the answer. That there's a complexity to life that we have to be okay with. That if we're not, okay, if we're not modeling something of that before our kids, we're setting them up to fail at some point in the future because they will suddenly come to a point that their faith will be brittle not something that is life-giving. And here's the thing that's missing, and I want us to notice this in Colossians 3 here. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. And then it moves on to slaves. What's missing there is any sense of authority being granted to the parents. In the same way as wives with husband, love is assumed as the Jesus-shaped way of authority. That love is assumed as the Jesus way of authority. And so there's a radical reshaping of what the household looks like. The master of the house is now loving his wife. The master of the house and his wife are now going to love well the children. And so now we fundamentally are in a place of the the Roman building blocks being massively undermined because the Christian household looks completely different than any other household in the community. It begins to say something. Uh, There's a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. I wouldn't recommend you read it. It's filled with massive big words. It takes forever, but it's a really fascinating look at the early church. And basically it says the main way they did evangelism was by living well in front of others about cultivating virtues. So the way that they lived was so radically different to others that they went, why do you do that? I want some of that. And that was how evangelism was done primarily in the first couple of centuries, says this book. I think it's right. But this is the kind of thing that it meant. They were living like this. And let's move on quickly to slaves and masters. This is by far for me the most difficult one. Christianity has a terrible record when it comes to slavery. We were hugely involved in the slave trade. The slave trade was baptized in some way by the church and seemed to be somehow uh, not only okay, but an important part of developing cultures. We We were a part of that, and we need to never forget that. And so when we speak about this, we need to do so humbly, particularly I recognize as a white man from the UK. That, that, that is real, that we have had, we've had profound impacts all over the world because of the way that we've spoken about slavery in the church. I wish Paul had written here that slavery is an abomination and we're to have nothing to do with it. He didn't. It's also worth saying that Christians then became at the forefront of trying to pull down slavery and still are today. Uh, if that's something that's of interest to you, I'd recommend an organization called IJM, uh, International Justice Mission, which is a Christian organization that is at the forefront. In fact, it's the world's largest anti-slavery organization in the world uh, doing brilliant work. So Christians are doing great stuff there, but we have, we have a terrible history here, and we just need to be honest about it if we're going to talk about it. What does Paul say here? 
The best thing I can come up with here of why he didn't just say, this is an abomination and you should have nothing to do with it, is that Christianity was and is about sensitive mission and showing that Christianity didn't needlessly threaten social order, but was a peaceful, subversive movement. It's the tortoise and the hare. Paul could have come in and blown it all up, but actually then Christians would have had no place to exist in the Greco-Roman world. That might have been the right thing to do. Instead, he said, no, come in and I want you to live differently towards your slaves. I want you to do things differently. From the outside, the Christian household looked like any other, yet when you got a little closer, looked a little deeper, it was profoundly different, not least because of the way that slaves were about to be treated. Colossians 3.11, go back to this again. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. Here it is, slave or free. Slave or free. The context here says that the master and the slave are brothers and sisters in the Lord. That actually their hierarchical thing has been completely obliterated and they have become like siblings. There's often a lot of work done to try and say that this is just like um, an employer-employee relationship and we use this as a way to think about how we exist towards our employers and our employees. I don't want to do that because I don't think it's right. I don't think that slavery really is like what we experience as employers and employees. I think there's something profoundly different going on here. There's lots of other things we can say about the workplace and the importance of working well and seeing purpose in it and all of that, and we'll do something like that later this year. But uh, this is not what that is. And so the service of the slave is again conditioned, like the child's obedience is conditioned as pleasing to the Lord, service that is rendered by the slave is conditioned as service to the Lord. And so the lordships of Jesus shapes even the attitudes who are, not, are those who are not free in this life. Profound. Imagine trying to live like that. To honor Jesus when you have no freedom, when you can't choose what you're going to do, when you are genuinely a slave to someone else. And then the masters have this obligation put upon them to provide what is right and what is fair what is right and fair. And we're going to break that down in just a second, but I wanted to remind us of something I said way back at the beginning. So I don't know if you remember, but when we were, when we were looking at this book, Colossians, and we, said, we did all the introductory stuff, who wrote it, when it was written, all that kind of stuff, that it was delivered by um, uh, Onesimus. And so that was fine. And it, one of the people in the, in the church is a guy called Philemon. <laughs> And we find another book in the New Testament written to a guy called Philemon. And it's most likely that both letters were written at the same time and delivered at the same time. And the important thing about Philemon is that this is a letter to Philemon saying, this slave guy that ran away from you, he has gone and he has come to me, to Paul, and he has served well among us and he is worthy of your praise. And what I'm doing is I'm sending him back to you but I want you to receive him as a brother. Now, can you imagine in this community, if there was something we knew, somebody who's run away and who's coming back, and, and in that context, he was to be beaten or killed because he had broken the law, like he was the property of the master. And so this context of slaves and free has a real person right in the middle of it. 
this guy Philemon in the church, who's going to have to decide how he's going to welcome back this slave or, or not. And so this master is told that they're to provide what is right and fair. Right, that which conforms to God's will. That's what it means. That's what the word means. That, that what conforms to God's will. And we've been learning. What is it that conforms to God's will? Well, it's to live under the lordship of Jesus. Well, that begins to readdress what a slave and a free person is. The master is also to provide what is fair. It's a strange word, this one. I, I did a bit of research on it. It doesn't appear that often in the New Testament, but it is a word that is about receiving what is equitable. It's a term not just of giving someone just enough, but it's a term of generosity and of equality. And so the, this master is being challenged here. Look, don't just make sure these people have enough to live on. Make sure they have a generous amount. Make sure that there's an equity between you and them. And the context of that, of course, is they are now your brothers and sisters. It's sometimes hard to make the leap to what does that mean for today? Well, it does mean certainly in the church we shouldn't be treating anybody differently. That we should be striving for this fairness in the church. No matter who you are, no matter your stage of life, no matter your background, no matter what is going on in your life, that there would be an equity, a fairness, a generosity of how we treat and act towards one another. And finally, Paul rounds all of this off by reminding the master that he himself is under the lordship of Jesus too. So even this guy at the top of the tree in the household code is told, yeah, but remember, Jesus is your Lord too. So that we, we have all these main relationships in the household. Husbands and wives, parents and children, and uh, slaves and masters. And we see that they're shaped not by the contemporary requirements, but by the lordship of Jesus. And which takes us from a place of exercising authority and power to get honor for ourselves and to a place where we are to exercise service and love towards one another in all those relationships. What are we going to say about all of that? How do we finish this off? How do we land something? Well, Paul here, I think, is trying to land all that he's been saying in the previous chunk, all about what is it to live as this new humanity? What is it to be these people who live under the lordship of Jesus, experiencing all that the goodness of that is, and he says, I want to bring it down to the simplest part of your life, which is your household. And I want to say to you, Paul says, that the lordship of Jesus impacts every part of that most basic part of your life. And so that has to be true for us too. So in our own households, whatever they look like, whether we live on our own, whether we live with our kids, whether we live with our parents, whether we live with a spouse or not, that in all of those places, whatever relationship is there, we have to recognize that we are under the lordship of Jesus. And that that spills out of our houses and into this. And it's particularly true in our culture today because most of us live in fairly small family units, sometimes just one, but rarely bigger than six or seven. 
And it, so it needs expression wider than that. And that's what this is. That's what this is. This is the beauty of the church, where we get to express some of these other relationships we don't have elsewhere. So for those of us who are married, how often are we welcoming a single person into our home? And not just as a, oh, come and a little pity party thing, but actually come and participate in the life of our family. Can we give you something? Can you give us something? We don't... We, when we lived in Aberdeen, we had the fortune of a number of young women coming to live with us for a while, usually in times of transition in their life. And we had a spare room, and so they came and they stayed with us for a while. But they weren't just lodgers. They were part of our family. Those young women have had profound impacts on Zoe and how she sees her place in the world and what she, her potential is and who she can be. One of the women who stayed with us continues to this day to message Zoe and say, how are you doing? What's going on? And it has a profound impact. And so there's, there's a place for us as a church to think well like that. When you're having people to your house for dinner, can we, can we think well about who, who might we invite? Who, who's sitting on the outside that we, can, that we can draw in? Could we be a hospitable, generous, fair group where we express these things? Because these are not normal things to do in our culture, particularly in times where we see great division. You know, whether that's in politics and the lunacy that's going on around that. Move on. Whether that's in all the the Brexit stuff and the the language that we hear often around those who are outsiders, those who are perhaps migrants or refugees. Do you know, if you know people who are from another culture, you should really express to them just now how much you value them being around. Because it's really tough at the moment for them to listen to a lot of the nonsense that's on the news, that's in the newspapers. We want to value those who've come from other countries to this place. And we need to express that. And certainly we want to express that within the community of faith here. Practical ways that we can live that out. I mentioned earlier, you know, taking time to get to know the names of the kids. You can have a profound impact on the kids in our church just by saying hello to them. Just by maybe remembering that some of them are maybe changing school just now or they're doing whatever. That we can, we can do that. That we need to make sure that for those who are older in our community, that they're not just forgotten about and left out there, but actually we visit, we make effort to participate in their lives, to know something of what's going on, to learn from them. They have the most incredible stories. I mean, we're, we're really fortunate. There's a whole group of people in our church who visit those who are shut in. It's fabulous, absolutely fabulous. One of the strengths of this church at the moment. We need to do that and so begin to model something of that as we live together. And our commitment is not to do that so that we will look good, that we will be somehow more honored than others because we have done something or we have brought someone into our home or something like that. But actually, we are undermining the power structures of this day by saying, I will give of myself. I said last week, if it's true that we're a rights-based culture, How can I use my rights for the benefit of others? Who can I speak up for because I have a voice? And then together we make this commitment to covenantal love. This is the consequence of the lordship of Jesus. 
a love that is present to one another, that advocates for one another, and pursues Christ-likeness together. Colossians 3 leads to a household of peace, love, and of service, which is only found when we live under the Lordship of Jesus. And so for each of us, we must struggle and wrestle to find that. And we must do it together. Amen.